I think that this event is going to have very profound consequences and ramifications on the Israeli psyche. By the same token, Palestinians who suffered deeply during those wars between Israel and Gaza in recent years are now going through something of a completely different magnitude in terms of how appalling it is for them. I'm David Knowles, and this is the first bonus episode of Battle Lines. Terrorist group Hamas unleashed pure, unadulterated evil in the world. But sadly, the Jewish people know perhaps better than anyone that there is no limit to the depravity of people when they want to inflict pain on others. Like every place I go, I go run away and I just find bombs and I find dead people. And like maybe one day I'll end up like them, but it's a really scary thing for me. <laughs> people telling me that you know mostly this is about Hamas, but they're also angry with absolutely everybody. I'm begging the world to bring my baby back home. In our bonus episodes, we'll focus on one story in particular, speaking to a specific reporter, eyewitness, or expert. Yesterday, I spoke to James Rothwell the Telegraph's Berlin correspondent. For many years, however, James was the Telegraph's Middle East correspondent and has spent the last few weeks reporting on the Israel-Hamas war. For weeks, the Gaza Strip has been under constant Israeli bombardment. Life inside Gaza is dominated by shells and missiles raining from the sky. I spoke to James about his reporting on life and death in the Gaza Strip. Here's our conversation. James, thank you so much for your time. What can you tell us about civilian life in Gaza at the moment? What have we been hearing from people on the ground? Well, even before the war started, civilian life in Gaza was very difficult because of a blockade that had been imposed by Israel and Egypt. But since the war broke out, that has been enhanced or upgraded, if you like, to a total siege, uh, which is what the Israelis called it. And that, as you know, has led to virtually no electricity, no water uh, and no food, which has had a fairly catastrophic impact on civilians in Gaza. And it is without a doubt a worse situation than I think anything we've seen before in in many decades of, uh, of covering this conflict. Could you talk us through a little bit what daily life looks like now for people in Gaza? What kind of things would they be struggling with? What kind of issues are they facing due to the bombardment? So daily life is extremely tough at the moment for Gazans. I'll I'll give you an example of a a Gazan civilian I spoke to fairly recently. She was saying that at the moment her dad has to get up at about five o'clock in the morning to queue up for bread because of the lack of food and the shortages of food in, in Gaza with no guarantee that he'll be able to get any. And sometimes that is compounded by the fact that the credit cards are not working and everything is being done on cash. And that might mean that even before you queue up for hours and hours at the bakery to get the bread, you've got to queue up for hours and hours to get the cash that allows you to buy the bread. So in other words, daily routine procedures that would have taken you a couple of minutes in air quotes, normal Gaza will now take you virtually the entire day. And that's before you even get into the constant aerial bombardment, the lack of electricity, the total uncertainty about what's going to happen next, and and the general sense of dread as to the direction that this war is heading in. Could you speak a little bit about that bombardment? We know it's been incredibly tough and and a huge amount of a huge number of bombs and missiles have been hurled at the Gaza Strip in the past few weeks. What are people on the ground telling you about about that experience of living through that? 
It's very difficult. The way that it works typically is that the Israelis, if they're going to bomb a civilian area, will issue an order to evacuate. So, for example, we saw that I believe tens of thousands of Gazans fled Gaza City and the northern Gaza Strip and went south because they were warned that that was about to get a very heavy bombardment. But there are also bombardments that come without warning. And it is a terrifying experience for a population of which roughly 50% is under the age of 18. And a huge number, therefore, of children have been caught up in this, not just traumatised by the fighting, but in many cases maimed, seriously injured and indeed killed by the bombs. Though Israel does stress that it's taking what measures it can to avoid civilian losses. What impact has this bombardment had on charities and NGOs working in Gaza? What can we say about that? It's very difficult for the NGOs that work in Gaza. Some of them are struggling to deliver the aid because they're not even able to sustain themselves at the moment in terms of the food that they need to keep going or the electricity just to do their jobs. And recently, it has been quite difficult even to get in touch with the aid workers to interview them about what they're up to because of the internet outage that was imposed on Friday, although some internet access does seem to be trickling back now. Uh, There are severe shortages that we've talked about, not just of of food and water, but also fuel. And if you don't have fuel, it doesn't just constrain your ability to get around and deliver the aid, but it's also having a terrible impact on hospitals where, for example, to cite an interview I did recently, I'm told that the autoclaves, which are steam powered, have run out of water and electricity they need to clean surgical instruments before operations. And and what that means to give you a quite graphic, but also very practical example of what this means for Garsons is that in the hospitals, they're not able to properly clean the instruments they use for operations like limb amputations. And so the doctors are having to resort to things like antibacterial gel to clean the instruments or even shop-bought vinegar, because that has some limited antibacterial properties, although nothing close to the standard of sterilization you would need to clean medical blades and so on. So it's from top to bottom, really, just a fairly catastrophic impact on not just daily life of Gazans, but also essentially their ability to survive at the moment. Could we go back to your points about the internet blockade there? How did that specifically affect hospitals and ambulances? I know you, you were writing in one of your pieces about ambulances having to operate essentially blind. What, what did that mean? So the lack of the internet means that you cannot coordinate your ambulances. You're not able to effectively communicate on what's just been hit and where you need to go and how severe the situation is. You are literally just driving towards a fireball in the air and hoping that you get there in time to administer emergency services work uh, before the people there have already died. And there was this report that ambulances were therefore just blindly driving towards the scene of an airstrike, really with no idea of what they were going to find when they get there, which of course makes the the, the sort of the humanitarian work and, and the medical work even more difficult because there's this real sense of chaos and just a total lack of information on the ground when the internet's gone as to what you're going to find when you arrive to the scene of one of these airstrikes. Could you explain a little bit more for us about how we report from Gaza? How do we know what's going on? Who, who do you talk to and who do you work with in, in the Strip? So we mainly work with our brilliant Gaza colleague, Siham Shamalak, who had been living in Gaza City and has been there 
for many years, but she has gone to southern Gaza, where she's now reporting for us uh, as and when she can. That, of course, has been difficult. And it's the same with many media organisations. It's been difficult because of the, the lack of internet access. And we were not able to communicate with her after Friday. We lost contact with her for an extended period of time. We, we were naturally very concerned about her, her well-being, but we have been able to re-establish contact with CM, fortunately, uh, and we're continuing to work together, which is um, which is a, a positive development. We also speak to uh, and CM interviews on our behalf, but we also speak to Gazans who are on the ground when we're able to access them, not just sort of normal civilians, as it were, but we also speak to aid workers who are Gazans employed by organisations such as Medical Aid for Palestinians, a a British NGO that that before this war had been doing a lot of work on trying to facilitate the access to Palestinians of medical aid, but but now has, has like many other organisations, just been sort of swamped with a, a much broader humanitarian crisis. And that allows us to build up a bit of a picture of what's going on on the ground in Gaza. But it it is difficult to be sure because of the internet outages. It it means that you can have long periods of time where the only source of information that you have uh, is coming from the Israeli side of the narrative. And that naturally creates challenges for, for a journalist. In terms of the difficulties of reporters who are in Gaza, if you just imagine that you're doing a standard journalism assignment somewhere in the world, Charging your phone is, 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 is more of a sort of minor annoyance. It's something that you need to be aware of just so that the phone doesn't run out of power. But imagine that you've got to work on this enormous assignment while your phone battery is at two or three percent. And literally every word that you type on WhatsApp as you relay information to your editors counts. If you're going to send a voice note, if you're going to send a picture, potentially a very important picture that shows the aftermath of an airstrike that's killed civilians in in Gaza, you've you've got to use that last three or four percent of your phone before it goes dry, potentially for a very long time, as effectively as as you can. And that, that I think, just speaks to the immense challenge that that our Palestinian colleagues like Siham are facing in in reporting this war. They're they're doing it with, as I said, less than 10 percent of their battery left. Then they've got to go and hunt down a generator somewhere in southern Gaza and hope that they can jump on that and get maybe another 10% of the battery. And so they're working in these unbelievably difficult logistical circumstances in order to bring to the Telegraph and other media organisations the reality of the ground of what's happening in, in Gaza. And it, it is immensely valuable. And, uh, and the work that our colleagues like Seaham have done, even in this early stage of a war that's going to be, uh, unfortunately, is going to last for a long time, You know, they have made absolutely extraordinary efforts to make this possible at the same time as facing bombardment and personal tragedy of those closest to them. Uh, The BBC's Gaza correspondent is another example of someone who's working in unbelievably difficult circumstances to to cover this war. You will have seen the report of the Al Jazeera correspondent whose entire family was wiped out tragically in an Israeli airstrike. So they they are going through absolute hell, those journalists, in order to bring this information to the public eye, including our colleague Siham. And uh, it's very, it's very difficult work, but they're doing what they can. James, you've been looking at this region for many years now, reporting on it for many years. Does this does this period of weeks stand out in its brutality and its suffering for you? I mean, what, what sticks in your mind from your reporting over the past few weeks? Yes, it is unlike anything I experienced when I was in Jerusalem covering the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The, the, the largest conflict that I covered took place in May 2021. And at that time, that was considered a large 
or relatively large war between Israel and Gaza. It killed about 250 Palestinians and roughly a dozen Israelis. As you can tell from those figures, that now is just a drop in the ocean, really, compared to the scale of destruction and horror that's happened in this latest war. And I think as a reporter who's been covering this for some years, one of the things that I'm struck by is the extent to which the Israeli security services were completely caught off guard by this attack. As uh, an Israel-Palestine reporter, one of the things that you're constantly reading about in the Israeli media is the ability of the security services to, in advance, thwart uh, attacks that are being plotted by cells of Hamas or other organisations. In my time in Jerusalem, at least one mini-war between Israel and Gaza was started preemptively by Israel. So Israel said that it recognised an imminent threat, and then it launched an operation in order to counter that threat. And I think that's an important piece of context here, because it shows that usually Israel will strike once it's identified the threat long before any violence has been carried out. That's that's usually how they operate. They don't seem to have had any indication whatsoever that this attack was coming. And as many Israelis are saying, and as former prime ministers that I've interviewed over the last two weeks have been saying, that this raises some really quite serious questions about what was putatively this security superstate in the Middle East, which which got caught off guard so badly. And I think that's probably the main thing that, that surprised me the most, putting to one side the violence, which of course is a different matter entirely, from the sort of strategic perspective of covering these these sorts of conflicts. I think that's what really stayed with me. Going back to the to the violence we're witnessing, the World Health Organization, UNICEF and other aid groups have called for an immediate ceasefire. Do you think there's any immediate prospect for this? And if so, or if not, why so? Why not? No, I don't. I, I think that there has been some early discussions on having what's being described as a humanitarian pause. Some people have said that humanitarian pause as a synonym for ceasefire. I, I don't think that's quite right because in the context of Gaza, when you talk about ceasefire, you are talking about an end to hostilities that will last for months, if not up to a year. So for example, there was after the May 2021 war, a ceasefire that lasted all the way up until August of the following year. And I just don't see that happening at the moment. I, I don't think Israel will be, nor is it interested in a ceasefire that would last for a sustained period of time until it feels that its military goals have been accomplished. Those goals are very wide in scope. They're talking about the total destruction of Hamas, both at the military and political level. That's something that they freely acknowledge is going to take months. There's even been a suggestion that it could take up to a year. That being said, I think this idea of a humanitarian pause, which is slightly different from a ceasefire, it would be a very brief window of time in which perhaps aid would be able to freely get in, is something that we may see potentially in the coming weeks. And and that doesn't just require work from Israel and from Israel's partners like the United States. It also requires Egypt, which controls the Rafa crossing into Gaza to coordinate on that too. But the thing about a, a so-called humanitarian pause is, as I said, it would be a narrow time window. It would not, I think, be an opportunity to get very large quantities of aid into the Gaza Strip. And I sense that we won't be seeing the bulk of that aid coming in until Israel feels that it can claim victory and withdraw from Gaza. And as I said, my, my sense is that that is going to be some months away rather than days or weeks. 
James, before we end, is there anything else you'd want to say that you think our listeners should hear? And I, I guess as well from your experience of the region, what would you want to say to people who are following this war but haven't been on the ground, haven't seen life in Gaza or life in Israel? There's, there's much I could say because it's uh, it, it's it's been a really sort of in, in a horrible way. It's been a sort of transformational moment for Israel and and for Palestinians in Gaza who are living through a bombardment that they've never experienced before. I, I think that this event is going to have very profound consequences and ramifications on the Israeli psyche. I think that the Israelis will look back on the air wars that they had with Hamas in May 2021 and others, and will look back on that, not nostalgically necessary, but look at it as something that was unbelievably easy and straightforward compared to what they're going through now. By the same token, uh, Palestinians who suffered deeply uh, during those wars between Israel and Gaza in recent years are now going through something of a completely different magnitude in terms of how appalling it is for them. It reminds me a lot of actually Ukraine. I I, I wasn't in Israel when this October 7 war broke out, but I was in Ukraine when the when the war there broke out. And there was this initial sense of everyone being sort of stunned and almost paralysed with horror at what had happened. And it took some time for people to psychologically readjust to the new reality of the war that they were in. And I think that on the Israeli side, we have also seen, to some extent, a kind of adjustment period where Israelis have had to transition, not from a state of peace, because of course there has been an ongoing armed conflict for decades, but but an escalation of their mindset from a relatively low-level conflict to something that is bigger than anything they've faced before. And the other point I'd make is that when we think about previous wars that Israel has fought, even when we think about the large-scale ones like the Yom Kippur War of 1973 or even the 1948 war, I think this is going to be bigger, not just in the context of Israel and Gaza, but also the risk of regional escalation, the risk of Hezbollah getting involved from the north continues to be very high. We appear to have seen missiles being fired from Yemen, which is something that Israeli officials had long been concerned about. But even some Israeli officials I spoke to over the years were quite sceptical of the idea that missiles would be fired from Yemen, for example. Many of the nightmare scenarios that the Israelis would warn about in briefings have now come to pass. And I think that with with that in mind, we're just heading into completely uncharted territory, unfortunately. The other thing I think is worth mentioning is that the media is, is rightly focused on, on the war at the moment, but there are huge questions that will be raised by this war about what happens to the Gaza Strip. That, that There is a whole range of options there in terms of what the future for Palestinians in Gaza might be. Israeli former prime ministers that I've interviewed recently have spoken quite optimistically and even bullishly about the idea that Gaza can simply be taken over by the Palestinian Authority, which currently governs in the West Bank. The problem with that is that the Palestinian Authority is very unpopular in the West Bank already, let alone any influence it might have over Gaza. And remember that it was kicked out of Gaza in 2007 after the civil war with Hamas, so they're they're not very popular there anyway. And so that option for post-war Gaza, I think, has a lot of question marks surrounding it. And there's also deep concern that this could be the beginning of a mass expulsion of Palestinians out of the Gaza Strip into the Sinai region, which would also, from from the Palestinian perspective, would be catastrophic and would also have severe ramifications for a two-state solution. And of course, the two-state solution has been raised a few times in the debates that I've seen on television in, in the United Kingdom about this issue. Uh, and what I would say as a reporter who covered Israel-Palestine for nearly four years, 
what I would say is that the two-state solution, in all honesty, has not been taken seriously in Israel for a very, very long time. And the Israeli political sphere has moved ever closer to the right. Before this unity government, there was an extreme right government in power in Israel which included a minister who sort of openly described himself as a fascist. And so the the political landscape for a two-state solution, even before this war began, was very, very poor in terms of the likelihood that a two-state solution could could happen. And my concern is that the odds of a two-state solution are now even lower than they were before that already fairly sorry state of of two-state negotiations. And of course, that deeply concerns Palestinians as well, because this this idea of a state, which of course in the background of all of this is is something that they've yearned for for many, many years, it just, it, it unfortunately seems an even more distant hope now than it was before. And when I hear Israeli leaders talking about the idea of new horizons for Gaza once the war is over and talking about perhaps the possibility of some potentially viable two-state solution being, as it were, born out of the ashes of this war in terms of self-determination for Palestinians in Gaza. My my fear is that we're not going to see that. I I think that Israeli politics for many years has been hurtling towards a one-state solution. And it is possible that one of the outcomes of this war is that the cause of the one-state solution is advanced significantly. Thank you so much, James. Just to finish, what do you think the medium short term future looks like for Gaza over the next few days, few weeks? I think the the civilian death toll in Gaza will be will be very high if a full scale invasion of Gaza occurs. What we're seeing at the moment is a partial incursion into the northern Gaza Strip, which which may be part of a a goal of potentially encircling Gaza City and then and then concentrating much of the fighting in the north. Even in that scenario, which is less ambitious than a full-scale invasion, the, the civilian death toll on the Palestinian side will be very high. For some context, in 2014, during that ground invasion, we, we were talking about 2,000 Palestinians being killed. Of course, that number is now dwarfed by the, the Palestinian death toll already, and it is undoubtedly going to climb higher as the violence continues. And the other thing I would say is that on the Israeli side, and the Israelis acknowledge this, there are going to be lots of Israeli soldiers being maimed and killed in this war. And many of those soldiers are conscripts, they're youngsters, they're in their late teens, early 20s. And I think one thing that is being discussed in Israel at the moment is people say they're ready for this, and I'm I'm sure they are, but how ready are they for the the body bags and the main soldiers that are going to be coming back out of Gaza as this war continues, because that is something that Israel will have to deal with as well. It's not just that lots of Palestinian civilians are being are being killed from from their perspective, because there is a lot of criticism of that in Israel too. It's that they are also going to suffer very heavy losses in this war. Hamas is deeply embedded in Gaza. It's been building those tunnels for ages. It's got dozens and dozens of kilometres of, of tunnels, we are told. If, the, if this does become existential for them in terms of a last stand from the tunnels of Gaza uh, against an Israeli invasion, you know they will clearly fight very fiercely and the, the Israeli losses will be high. And so to return to your question in terms of the weeks and months to come uh, for Gaza, yes, very unfortunately, the, the, the losses, and particularly civilian losses, will be extremely high on the Palestinian side. But also Israel, I think, is preparing itself for a situation where there are also very significant losses on their side in terms of soldiers being killed and maimed. And uh, that is something that they're also going to have to confront. James, thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you very much. Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our news, analysis and dispatches from the ground in Israel and Gaza, subscribe to The Telegraph or sign up to Dispatches, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from contributors to this podcast. If you appreciated the podcast, please consider following Battle Lines on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. Battle Lines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine, you can listen to Battle Lines' sister podcast, Ukraine the Latest. This episode of Battle Lines was produced by me, David Knowles, and executive producer, Louisa Wells. <laughs>